experimenting with something here today. But for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Ball, and this is my wife, Lisette, and we got four other kids that will probably be running around throughout the service, so hopefully they are good. Uh, but Mark and Jane obviously are not here this morning, and so I've been given uh, this opportunity to come share. And I just want to thank them because they have given me a, a growth opportunity. See, any time that we are presented with an opportunity that requires faith, it really positions us to be able to expand and gain a deeper understanding of God. And I know just even where I stand today, the process of this week, there's some insights that I did not know before <laughs> this process. Um, but, you know, any time that I am presented with this opportunity beyond the obvious thing of, praying and asking, is there something specifically that God is, is asking me to present? You know, another practice that I have is to be able to just almost look inside and be able to pinpoint any areas of lingering burden or just uneasiness. Like, is there something that is just, like, maybe I'm carrying, but, like, I haven't really dealt with it or even looked at it. And what I've come to realize is, is, is sometimes these areas of burden or just like funk that you don't know about actually turn out to be these indicators of like underground wellsprings of revelation or just things that God wants to teach you. Like they can, like when you, when you dig on those, it's like God saying, hey, dig here. There's something to be found. And so like as I, like in this process, I did pinpoint a burden that I had been carrying that it actually had been increasing over the years. And it really it was a burden for the church and for the, like the people that make up the church. Because I, I don't know if you've really been noticing, but things aren't that pretty these days uh, outside the church, but also inside the church. And specifically, it's becoming harder to define what it even means to be Christian. And, or Christianity as a whole like, I almost have this vision of, has anybody here played with Play-Doh before? before? Yeah. Well, I almost envision Christianity right now as this big Play-Doh ball where all the colors have been mixed together. It's been dropped. It's been rolled under couches. It's picked up a lot of dirt, a lot of hair. It just, and who knows what else is in that ball? And so here you have this big thing. It's kind of gross. You don't really want to touch it, let alone be associated with it. And that's kind of where we're at. It feels like it. Maybe not the truth, but that's what it feels like. And, and so like this, this idea of like there's this lack of distinction. Like what is it that we're actually dealing with here? Yet somewhere in the mess and the confusion of this thing, like there's, there's something I know. You can't just throw this out because I've experienced something that has struck me to the core. That is, like, the life itself, and it's marked me, and it's, but it can't be throw, thrown away, but it, there's something that needs to be rediscovered. There's something that once more that needs to rise to the top and to emerge as something distinct, some distinct characteristics for what it actually means to be a Christ follower, to be united with the Spirit of God that is both evident and obvious that each of us true the believers carry. And so in these, in these thoughts, this word of distinct, what it is to be distinct, 
And so what comes to mind, and I'm going to have a little bit of participation, what comes to mind when you think of the word distinct? Something that stands out. Stands out, yeah. Any examples come to mind? Exclusive to its own and not any other. Unmistakable. Has any, if, if there was a gas leak in here, would anybody know it? Interesting enough, gasoline was actually designed for distinction. You can't smell gasoline. It's clear. You can't perceive it. But they designed it in a way that it can be readily perceived. It's distinct. And so, you know, really as we, I don't know if you guys noticed when you walked in the door, we had a candle lit. We were trying to be fancy. And the smell was more of kind of like a Christmas-type smell. Like it's something when you step in and you hear that, you, f- you smell the aroma of the candle, it's like that takes you somewhere. It's a, it's a distinct um, smell. And so actually it would be good to have a definition to work off of. And so to be distinct means to be recognizably different in nature from something else of its similar type. All right, so if you're walking in the woods and you see a little creature with kind of a bandana thing around its eyes, what, what have you encountered? Running. A what? Running. You're running. <laughs> a raccoon. Or a bank-robbing possum, one of the two. But you recognize it right away for what it is. It's recognizably different. It stands out in nature. But it's readily, also readily distinguishable by your senses. It's a gasoline. You smell it right away. You touch something, and it just immediately triggers exactly what it is. It's un- and, and another one is it's so clearly apparent as to be unmistakable or definite. And that got me right there. That word unmistakable, I think that is the heart, what my heart longs for, that as a church or as people, that once again, there would be this something that is unmistakable that would rise up, that would associate those who are connected with Christ. And so we're going to attempt something. We don't know how it's going to go, but we have a game that we have at our house, and it's called What is in the Box? And so we are going to, um, yeah, yeah, we can, Corey, so we're going to have you pass around the box real quick. And you keep the hole towards you, and you bring that to somebody and let them kind of feel around in there. And let's just let a couple people kind of feel around in there real quick. Don't say what it is yet, but just kind of nod your head if you feel like you've figured out what that is. (laughs) Talking about raccoons, I don't know, man. (laughs) I like my hands. So even from the sound, does anybody have any guesses? <laughs> metal, yeah. So so metal metal has a distinct or a sound, yeah. yeah. That's good. We'll have one more here with Crystal, and then we'll we're not going to belabor this point. All right. So what what do you, what do you think? Spoon. Spoon. Yeah. Uh, Vanna, you want to pull what's out of the box? <laughs> So we got 
a spoon and a fork. Pretty, you know, you feel that, you, you handle those every day. They're, they're pretty distinguishable. So would everybody agree that those things are recognizably different, readily distinguishable by your senses, and also unmistakable? Yeah. And so to get you guys thinking a little bit, I just want to give you a few statements here, just to, just to think about. So distinction is necessary for recognition. Is it, was that true, you think? That you have to have some sort of characteristics that, that make you stand out or be apart from something else to actually recognize what it is that is before you. I know I used to have these friends that were identical twins, and I can't tell you how embarrassing it was to be in public and to meet one of them. And it would be like five minutes into the conversations where I'm just waiting for some sort of clue for who it was. And I'm like, man, this is somebody I'm pretty good friends with. How do I not, how can I not tell? But there wasn't enough distinguishing characteristics to be able to really know for certainty. All right, what about this statement? You can't rally around what you can't recognize. And so if you have a group of people that need to gather and, and rally at a certain point, if, if people can't actually know if they've made it there or if, you've, if they've even find it, is it possible to rally, to gather? What about this? Rallying results in a rise of strength, power, and identity. So rallying results in a rise of strength, power, and identity. You see, the fullness of who God made us to be in our, and in our identity is not alone. Right? There is a part of us discovering or regaining the fullness of our identity that is tied to our ability to unite. We have to have the ability to rally. And you see... We have to be able to rediscover these defining characteristics that we can rally around. Because if there's nothing distinct, there's nothing to recognize. And if we can't recognize it, we can't rally. And if we can't rally, we can't have a rise in the strength and the power and the, the shared identity that we were actually designed for. And I'd say, well, you'd probably agree that that's what's been lost, right? Like that's what needs to be taken back. In Ephesians 3, it says, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's through the church. Like gasoline, I would say, I would beg to, I would argue that we too were designed for distinction. So Christian, you know, here we are, we're, we're these followers of Christ, and we've been given this name, we're Christians, right? And so it's interesting if you trace it back to where did that come from? And if you go back to the origins of that word, and actually it's explicitly stated in scriptures. In Acts 11, it says, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Well, that makes that easy for us. But if you look at it, in the time frame between Jesus being crucified and this label being given, there actually is information that these people that were just following Christ were called followers of the way. 
and they were viewed by society and labeled as society as this like sect group. They're basically a cult of saying, you know what, like this insignificant just group of people, they're kind of doing their thing, followers of the way. We've got to classify them as something, but don't take them too seriously, okay? And actually, they had good reason to think that because they had chopped the head off the movement, right? Isn't that what they did with Christ? And the way nature works, if you want to kill something, what do you do? You chop its head off. And it's only a matter of time before the rest of the body dies out. Yet what they didn't realize is their solution to get rid of this problem actually superpowered the movement. Because with the head removed, it actually made way for God's purpose and the mysterious plan of being actually to take the head and place it into the heart of every believer. So the significance of Antioch is you have this group that should have been dying out by now, right? This time had passed since the crucifixion. You have these group going along, and everybody's just waiting for it. There's going to be a decline. Yet in Antioch, revival breaks out. And not only that, like in Antioch, it was confounding because not only was this group coming more alive and they were growing and gaining converts in the city, but it represented something supernatural. Because not only all of that, but up until this point, the believers were mainly focused on Jewish communities. And, but in Antioch, it was primarily a Greek and a, a Gentile group. And so not only were they growing, but they were crossing societal lines. And, and so it was almost like, okay, these Christians, like they are... They're stirring things up. And I can't downplay the significance and how radical and how impossible it was that these believers were able to share life together. Because in that culture, you didn't intermingle, you didn't rub elbows with the different groups. There was very defined lines and very defined players. And everybody knew where everybody else stacked up or had their opinion of where they stacked up in the pecking order of things. So if you were a Jew, a Gentile, a, a Greek, a Samaritan, a foreigner, a Roman, everybody had their, their badges. They knew. And those things were set, and you just didn't mess with it. But these Christians, they broke the system. They came in there, and this distinct and this defining characteristic started to rise up among these Christians. There was a new system that emerged. They, didn't, they were messing with the old system. There was a new system where everybody began to classify each other in more familial terms. There, were, there wasn't Jew and Gentile, but there was brothers. There were sisters. There was fathers, and there was mothers in the faith, but comprised of all of those different subsets or all those groups. So what was it that set these, these old, earlier believers apart? And I think it was the fact that it wasn't just that they believed, but it was rather the fact that their lives really legitimized the substance of their belief. So it wasn't just that they believed, yeah, I agreed that, but their lives legitimized the substance of their belief. I mean, we don't have to read long into the scriptures to find there was a lot of sacrifices that they had to endure for becoming and believing this way, yet they endured it. The fruit of love and of peace and transformation rose up. That was a defining characteristic of their lives. 
but also, like I said, the supernatural unity that was shared among this incredibly diverse family of faith. And so there was this new way of living that rose up among these believers. And against all odds, it keeps spreading. And as much action as they took to suppress the movement, it kept multiplying. And so what happened? How are we left today with this big sketchy ball of Play-Doh when it seemed like what was going on back there was pretty good, right? There was, there was momentum. There was, there was a power. There was a substance. There was transformation that was going on with, this, with these early believers. I think for starters, you know, something that was helpful for me is to go back and say, well, what made them Christian? Like, what, what made them to have that classification? And today, are we still working off the same definitions? You know, or, you know, could it be that the reason that there's so much confusion is that we've kind of lumped a lot of things under the banner of Christianity that maybe should have never been there in the first place? It gets confusing. And I think some clues can be found in the, the original Greek word. I'm, I'm not going to geek out too much here on you guys. But Christian was a, from the word Christianos. And it's some of the significance of that just back in their culture is so if I was very wealthy back in that day and I had an estate and I had slaves and I had workers and the, you had the ball household, right? Well, if, say... Um, my wife was my slave back then, and, and she was under my ownership or under my household. She would be considered a balianos. It means that anos denoted ownership of coming within and with under. You're in the house legally and legitimately. You're part you're of the ownership. And so what, what the significance of that to be Christian means that you've, you are part of God's estate. You are under his coverage and, and legally and legitimately. Well, how is that accomplished? You know, if that's what is, it means to kind of be a Christian, to be uh, under God, well, some scriptures that come to mind are no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they have been born again. We've heard that, right? So there, there needs to be something, a new birth or some sort of thing that happens to enter, to come under God's household. But then also for us to declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, declare with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved, right? We'll be saved from something, but saved into something as well. But who all believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right and the authority to become children of God. Like I said, this, this was a legal term, a legal term of ownership. And so for those who believed and accepted him, he gave the right and the authority to become children of God. And so, so the one who has, we're going to back to that question, what makes somebody a Christian? Like it really was this. It was somebody that believed, that accepted, and received the gift of life through Jesus Christ, really giving them a legal and legitimate access into the household of God, a new classification. And so some key words there, the believing, which is all about faith, the receiving, which is all about the spirit, the indwelling of the spirit, and the heart, 
receiving into the heart is all about lordship, actually receiving him as Lord. And I don't know how much you guys um, pay for books, but I kind of have a maximum of how far I would pay for a book. And I was researching, you know, studying this week, and I came across this book with a good title. It was called Christianity as Distinct Practices, which I was like, okay, kind of goes with the topic. Well, I looked to buy it, and it's 125 bucks. So I'm like, dang, that's not happening. Uh, <laughs> so I read the little, like, write-up on it. But in the write-up, there was actually some good stuff. So maybe, maybe it is worth 125 bucks. It says, to think of Christianity simply in terms of belief. Only belief is misleading and represents an underdetermination of its distinct character. So basically that big college word is saying that belief in and of itself is inadequate to really be able to appreciate all of the distinct qualities that really rise out of a person's life that is walking in step with the Spirit of God. And so if you if you ever heard or somebody say to you, or perhaps you've noticed, or maybe you said this to somebody else, it's like, man, like, what is it that's different about you? Like, there's just something, like, there's something that's kind of different about you. What is that? Or, I want what you have. Man, what, whatever that is, like, I want what you have. But what is that? People are distinguishing something that they don't yet have the language for. Right? They're sensing something that, that is uncommon, yet they're aware of it, but there's not the language for it. And it's almost like there's a magnetism that surrounds believers' lives. Like I know even the first time that we came here as a church and we connected with Mark and Jane, there was just something where they felt like family right away. Like there was something, there was a magnetism, and there was, like I said, that familial bond. Even though I didn't know them yet, there was, there was a connection there. But you know it's true that not all believers are on the same page. Yeah. Do you know that? Because yeah. the belief, you know, the scriptures that we're talking about, what it takes to be in the household of God, the believing that is mentioned there. Actually, if you look at the Greek word for that, once again, I'm not going to geek out over it. But it's not talking about a casual acceptance. To believe is to casually accept, like, yes, what you've told me, I, I, I'll, I'll nod my head at that. Like, that's a casual acceptance. Like, yeah, that's, that's true. Rather, the, the, the type of believing that they're talking about is really this convinced. It's a convinced type of believing. It's a committed type of believing. It's a putting one's trust in type of believing and actually more akin to a faith type of believing. It's like this. It's if, if, if somebody's trying to sell you a product... You can sit there and say, yeah, like, I believe everything you say about it. That's an awesome product. But the type of believing that they're talking about here is you believe so much in it that you've bought it. Yeah. You've actually bought the thing that you believe in. And, and there's been a legitimate heart transaction that has taken place, and you've received what, what has been offered. And so this is, this is an interesting, maybe perhaps, turn of events with the, the talking today, but I came across these passages in, in Luke 11, and so if you do have the Bible, a Bible and want to follow along, feel free to do that. I do have it on the screen as well, um, if that's going to be helpful. But in this block of, of Scripture, Jesus hits 
the same thing four times, back to back to back, but at a different angle. He's coming, at, he's, he's coming specifically at the heart. He's getting to the heart of the matter because, and I think that's where distinction comes from. Like distinction actually gets its origin and rises up from the heart. And so if there's heart issues, there's probably distinction issues as well. And so I want you to join me as we, we look at this. And so the first um, passage I want you to look at is in Luke eleven twenty four through, um, starting at verse 24. And it says this, when an impure spirit comes out of a person and goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it, then it says, I will return to the house I left. When um, it arrives at the house, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live in there. And the final condition is worse than the first. And I know reading that years back, I'm like, man, it's kind of creepy. Like, really, it's, and for me, it felt like the, the lesson in that was, like, don't mess with demons. Or, like, or if you, you say you're going to change your life, do it, because you don't want to clean things up and then, next, I mean, being a worse. So, like, it really is, like, was Jesus really saying, I need to have a healthy respect for the demons, or, like, I really need to get my act together? Like, is that the, the point here? No, like, the point is, he's saying, he's exposing the fact of, like, what it is to live with an unfilled heart. You can hear a message that's just moving and it calls some attention to stuff in your life and you can, you know, through willpower, you know, man up and clean up some things. But the thing is, if you don't receive a greater power or a greater authority inside of you, it's just a matter of time that that empty space inside of yourself becomes, it just remains a constant target. And so what he's saying here in this is, is to say, you know what? I want you to realize the value of not trying to live out of your own power and your own strength, right? Like the, the, and in the context of the scriptures, there's people, there's a large crowd around Jesus to hear all that he has to say. And so he starts pointing these messages toward the crowd to say, you know, there's some in the crowd here that you're trying to come at me, and you're, but you're still wanting to do things in your own strength. And so, really, in this, there's an admonishment, there's a warning, but there's also an invitation. And I think that's the heart of God, that he says, you know what, I want to be the one that comes in and fills you. I want to be the one that fights this battle for you. Like, this isn't yours to carry. And so, in this, like the invitation is, you know, receive this, receive this. But notice what happens there. If you do receive that, what is that? To have the, the power and the strength that is from God, it's distinct. Because we know what it is for people that do things in their own strength. But there is a distinction that rises up out of people that have the power and the strength of God operative in their lives. It's distinct. The next thing Jesus hits the crowd with, it says, As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Which is kind of weird, but I guess, you know, she was trying to be nice with her statement. You, know, you take a compliment whenever it comes. But 
you know, Jesus could have easily been like, thanks, ma'am, I'm going to go back to sharing here. But what he does is he takes the spotlight of the praise that she was shining on him and flips it and shines it on her heart and says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And I thought it was interesting, you know, we're talking about, like, why didn't he say believe it? Hear the word of God and believe it. Well, maybe it wasn't a faith issue that this lady had, but connected to the idea of obedience is trust, right? Like, is the, could it be that actually there is a trust issue that is keeping her from being able to allow the Spirit of God to enter into her in a way that would be transformative, right? So there's a trust issue that is in place here. And so when he says obey... It's not in the tone of, you need to do what I told you to do. Because what? That's based on law and consequence. You're motivated by consequence. No, the obeying here is really from a heart that says, I want you to know what it is to trust. I want you, because love is there. If there's not trust, it's actually impossible for there to be love there as well. You know, if somebody held a gun to my head and said, Chris, I need you to obey me or I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to obey out of the, the threat of negative consequence. Yeah, I don't want to see how that ends out. But in my wife, on the other hand, you know, she has told me, she's commanded me not to put my shoes on the counter or on the table. And for me, that wasn't really a big deal. You know, you just, if it's there, it's the, at the level I need, I'm going to put it there. But that's a big deal to her. But I'm less concerned about the consequences of what, was she going to slap me or make me sleep on the couch? No, like, I am motivated by love. And I want her to actually be able to trust me and to be able to, like, there's, there's a higher motivation here. And so listen to this verse. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit leads to life and to peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So like I said, Jesus is kind of calling attention and shining the, the spotlight on unyielded hearts. So like I said, maybe it's trust, but maybe it's submission. It's being able to come up with under, from under authority. You know, there's a lot of people that, and myself, like it's, it's hard to resist or submit to authority. Whether it's through a rebellious spirit, I mean, just, we don't want to listen. That's as simple as it is. There's no other reason. I just don't want to listen to you. Or past heart hurts. Like past heart hurts really can destroy trust. And so really the invitation, like I said, these are admonishments, but they all come with an invitation was trust me. And it's interesting with this, the language, take note of the language Jesus uses. He said, blessed, or or does he say that? He said, blessed rather is those who hear the word and God and obey it. Just go back to the Sermon on the Mount. When anytime Jesus said, blessed is, that means there's something to be received now. That there's something that is at hand that you can grab hold of. So when he says, blessed are those who hear and obey, it means there's there's healing for your heart of trust that can happen right here and now. Grab hold of it. The next one is labeled the sign of Jonah. And as the crowds increased, Jesus said, 
This is a wicked generation, and it asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. And then a few passages later, it says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented of preach, uh, through the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And so really, I don't know if you get this, but that was a slap in the face. So you have these people that kind of have this puffed up sense of identity because they're God's people. They're the religious ones running the show. And for him to say, you know, I'm not, you're asking for a sign. It's like even the Ninevites got it. Like even the Ninevites could see what was right in front of them. But your hearts are so hard that you can't even see the very thing that you should have recognized that's actually right in your face. And you see, sometimes in God's love, he'll slap you upside the head. And really, do you know that offense is a great way of opening doors? You know, sometimes it takes us having to encounter this offense for us to even be open to receiving what God would want to give us. But in that, there's the choice. I mean, there is the choice to, to further constrict and to callous. But there is. Whatever opening that does and whatever light comes in through that offense, there's the invitation here of God saying, hey, stay open. Let my light come and actually melt away that heart. Because part of it was, it was part of their hardness was connected to blindness. They could not see where the God, the Savior of the world, was working right in front of them all along. So he's, the invitation was, let my light hit your heart and see again. And so lastly here, one last little story that he hits them with, I found very interesting. It says, the queen of the south will rise at judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something better, much something greater than Solomon is here. And so I want you to catch this. That there's this queen, the queen of Sheba, that actually went and traveled to see Solomon because she heard of the fame of his wisdom. You know what Jesus was doing is he's pointing a spotlight on the crowd saying, you know what? The reason you're not actually going to get the fullness of what I'm asking you for is because there's an indifference in your life. There's actually a lack of effort and a laziness in your life that there's things of God to be explored. There's treasures to be obtained. Even now, there's depth. Like I'm at work, but the thing is your vision is, is pointed down. And you know, and, and, and it's because it's pointing down, it's like there is a depth and a richness to life that you're missing out on. And so to use this contrast of this, this queen who was a secular queen that came from a nation that didn't even know God, yet she wanted to know the things that were above, that were beyond what could be seen. She wanted to know, like there was a draw in her heart and she explored it. Yet these people that were in this holy city, that had the Savior, they had, there was no effort for anything. And so the invitation, or the, the, the admonishment is, like dream again. Reach, get up. There's treasures to be attained. Let the spark of life come back into your heart. But the invitation in that was as well, was to look up and see the stars again. 
but to see and just be mesmerized and catch the vision for the things that are beyond. It's all about fulfillment. To discover the mysteries and the treasures that God has hidden for whoever would dare to seek them out. And so I found this excerpt because, like I said, we're going back to this thing of believers. Not all believers. Not, a, not everybody. There's heart conditions that are preventing people from receiving. And there was a description of the crowds. And I'm going to read this. Somebody else wrote this, but it says, If the crowds in Luke have been consistent about anything, it is their dependable aptitude to be at once both open and fickle. The crowds had never ceased to be open and interested in Jesus' message and works, but they consistently remained noncommittal and fickle about becoming personally and favorably involved in his ministry. The masses were interested and complimentary, but very few of them had given themselves to actual discipleship. In short, they were exhibiting what I'm calling a hollow faith. And I just want to land on this, this, this thought of, well, how does all that relate to this idea of distinction? Like I said, because to have the strength and the power of God operative in our life, there is a distinction in that that becomes something defining. That becomes part of that, what is that thing that you have? Well, it's the strength and power of God in my life. That's what that thing is. Let me tell you about it. Wow, like how is it that you have so much trust or so much faith that things are going to work out? Well, let me tell you, like it's through my relationship with God that the indwelling of His Spirit that I, I, I know Him. I know He's trustworthy. I trust. I know it. There's a heart knowing. Or as well, like this whole thing of like the hardness of heart. Why is it that you have such joy in your life? Like, why is it that you feel like there's, there is a life, an aura of life around your life that is a distinguishing quality? I'm filled with the Spirit. The Spirit that is not my own is inside of me. And lastly, how is it that you, there's like wisdom and there's like you're saying things that are like, wow, like how do you even have that insight? Or like how do you have that perspective? It's because I've sought the treasures of God through Spirit. I've sought after the things of God and He has through that relationship, positioned me to receive things that you can't get in this world. Invitations there for distinction. And I think for us today, it is that question of, you know, many of us, we've, we've received. We've believed and we've received transactionally. We are in the house of God. And as Robert would say, praise God for that. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, we can agree, we can agree. But there are also areas of where we are in process that these can help us to see, you know what, like there are areas of past hurts that we still, like we're holding out. We have not submitted and we will not, we have not yet trusted God to gain access, to bring full healing. We still want to be like the guy that has the house. Like we still want to be able to manage something on our own to regain some bit of control, Right? It's like, man, like, you don't need to come in and take on the whole house, do you, God? Like, at least save me a closet. I need my closet over here. Like, where am I going to put my stuff, right? But God wants our whole hearts. Because actually, that closet can look a lot better in God's hands than it can in yours. Right? 
So I just want to end with this. I just want to give the opportunity. You know, we'll be up here. We'll be hanging out. And, and so if you do want anybody to pray with you, I want to say this is a safe place to do that. And, um, and so feel free to come up afterwards. But let, let me pray this out of here. Father God, I thank you for your word. And your word that wasn't the sum total of my words, but that your word that, that was maybe um, beyond my words, your words that were speaking to the hearts of, of people in this room or even raising to the surface, just like those burdens, these areas that are indicators of the underground wells where you're saying, dig here. There's something to be learned. There's healing to be gained here. And so I just pray that wherever those flagposts are that need to rise up in what was spoken today, let it remain and let it follow until there is growth and your purposes are accomplished. And, do I, and God, I do pray that this, this idea of distinction, that the church, that your church, that this expression of your church here, but also in the states and worldwide, start to recognize the things that have maybe got lumped in that never should have been there in the first place. And that you would restore and allow there to be a rediscovering and emergence of the thing, the distinct characteristics that are transcendent and that are full of life and that are full of you. So we welcome those. God, I welcome that in my life. And I just speak that over everybody here. Start.